Hey, this is Thor from Cybrary. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or one of our other series like 401 Access Denied or Go For It with Sarah Moffat, then make sure to like, follow, or subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And we'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it and you could be featured in a future episode. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. In this episode of the Cybrary Podcast, Cybrary's Jonathan Myers, along with Michael Weigand and Josh Spinoza from Shift 5, are joined by Dr. TJ O'Connor to discuss their shared experience of Army cyber defense exercises. Dr. O'Connor also touches on his journey in cybersecurity education and explains his current role as the cybersecurity program chair at Florida Tech, which includes participating in FITSEC defensive and offensive competitions. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Cyberry Podcast. It's just me today, Jonathan Myers, the principal infrastructure engineer here at Cyberry. I've kidnapped Mike and locked him in a closet so that we can have conversations without him and him always staring in a certain direction. Uh, I got three guests today. Two you will look familiar. We have Mike and Josh from Shift 5. And then we also have TJ O'Connor, who's a professor. Um, I'll let him do the introduction. He's a professor down in Florida. And uh, TJ, over to you for a quick intro, and then we'll switch over to Mike and Josh. Yeah, sure. My name is uh, Dr. TJ O'Connor. I am the Cybersecurity Program Chair at Florida Tech, and uh, I previously served as uh, Mike's instructor at U.S. Military Academy. Nice. Mike, recap for everybody. Uh, former Army officer, originally corrupted by uh, Dr. O'Connor here, um, became a cyber officer uh, doing cool stuff in the Army, and then uh, co-founded Shift 5 with Josh. Josh, over to you. Yeah, Um you guys have already given basically all the important parts of the intro, so I'm an amalgamation of the two. Uh, <laughs> uh, met all three of these guys at, uh, at West Point, uh, co-founded Ship 5 with Mike after uh, doing about half a career in, uh, in the IC and Army Cyber Command. Nice. Uh, TJ, do you want to start giving us a, like a quick background? So uh, you basically taught one or all of us at some point through some way, shape, or form at West Point. Um, kind of like interested in how your like teaching kind of career began and then like how it's progressed to where you are now. Yeah, so, uh, you know, just like the three of you, I, I went to the military academy. Uh, I commissioned as an army officer. I commissioned into the branch at the time that was the Signal Corps that kind of handled all the technology um, for the army. And then uh, spent about eight years in the active force. Most of it uh, was in really fun excitements. I spent time in supporting a attack helicopter battalion. And then I spent a couple years um, supporting a special forces group uh, downrange and really had fun with that. And then kind of following those assignments, the army does the right thing and, and sent me to grad school to go get a master's degree and then go up to teach to West Point. Um, and that's where I guess I ran into to Mike for the first time. And then I, we had you in class as well, I think too, right? Uh, the following year. How did you end up at Florida Tech, I guess, is the, the bigger okay, question. Okay, so... So fast forward uh, 12 years later. So I, I guess the, the big takeaway is that the experience that I had at West Point teaching, uh, I absolutely fell in love with. It was something I really enjoyed. And so, uh, you know, still in the middle of an Army career, there's not really a lot of opportunities to be a permanent um, instructor while you're in the Army. Um, so I finished my Army career in, in about three different Special Forces units and then came uh, all along working on my Ph.D., and then immediately upon retiring, I, I rolled right into the position I have now and have had for a couple of years teaching down at Florida Tech. 
Nice. So you said you're the uh, the cybersecurity chair, I think is what you said? Yep. What, is that, what does that entail uh, for us non-civilian university attenders types? Yeah, so I oversee the curriculum development for uh, both our graduate cyber program and our undergraduate program in uh, computer science that has a cyber operations concentration. Um, and then, so you guys do... Uh, a bunch of like cyber defense exercises and things like that. Uh, can you kind of talk me through like how that kind of works? Sure. Uh, so we have a team here, uh, FITSEC, uh, that uh, Florida Tech and Florida, Florida Institute of Technology Cybersecurity. Um, and that team competes in uh, a wealth of different competitions. And so uh, we've done everything from the traditional kind of defense like exercises, like uh, uh, the collegiate uh, uh, cyber defense competition to um, some of the offensive competitions like the cyber penetrate, the national cyber penetration test competition, and then the traditional kind of uh, Jeopardy style CTFs. Um, uh, and recently that, that includes like the national cyber league and the, uh, and just kind of weekly CTFs um, that are kind of available. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think any of these existed when we were going through, right? Like I, we only had the, the one, what was it? The one big cyber defense exercise that everybody like, got really excited about i remember like who was it it was uh colonel goda was always like standing up on the poop deck in the mess hall just like cheering and remember it was like the big old lead-ups where everybody was just like cheering because they were like these nerds are just like going so crazy over the dumbest things um i'm super interested in kind of how you've seen that evolve over time right because i don't think cyber wasn't really big back in 2009 when we were all kind of doing it and there was just like one big exercise and it was basically only the service academies i don't think there was any civilian equivalent at the time. And I'm, I'm super interested in that kind of like progression because I think, I think cyber defense exercises are kind of like a key, a key pillar of like continuous learning and especially trying to get like new people into the, like the field. I think those are like a great way to kind of like get you involved really quickly to kind of see and do a lot of cool things. Yeah. So, uh, so at the military academy, what we had was what the NSA sponsored, which was the cyber defense exercise. Uh, it's kind of an unfair competition with fair rules. Um, they put you inside of a network that has kind of already been compromised by teams at the National Security Agency, and you have to kind of fight your way out of that network and secure it. Um, and uh, yeah, terrible, you know, it's a losing proposition from the beginning. It's just how much you lose in comparison to the other teams. Um, and I think there's a lot of great lessons there that go on. Um, and and you know. They exist in both strategic and kind of tactical decision making. Um, that I think a lot of our students got very good at, at specific skill sets like intrusion detection or uh, configuration of firewalls. But at a bigger level, it allowed you to kind of see what was going on in, in the course of an attack and to both kind of prepare for that inbound attack that you knew was going to happen. And then once it happened, kind of manage the chaos. And uh, the years that we did really well. I would say it was less of an effort in, in technical preparation and more of an effort in cage, chaos management. I think the, the final year where we kind of ran away with that, we won two of the three years that I was there. The final year that, that uh, Mike, Mike's team won, and I think you were on that one as well, Jonathan? Or, uh, that was a year before. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the final team that I know Mike's won, uh, our, our captain at the time was someone that was just really relaxed, um, an individual that kind of had the ability to just kind of uh, talk real gently to his peers and motivate them, but in the same token, 
not really stress anyone else when the chaos happened. And I think that was that was a lesson that I hopefully translated to kind of all the students uh, and that they carried well past how you configure Snort. Yeah. Mike, do you remember what your, what your, uh, your assignment was? Like what your little area was that you were, you were working? Oh, I remember Mike's assignment. I do. So interestingly, um, it was a, uh, it was really exciting opportunity for me because I had also just had my wisdom teeth removed. <laughs> so I was on some pretty strong drugs through the, uh, through the entire experience. Um, uh, let's see, I, I remember specifically having a hand in, in like helping configure, uh, these free BSD machines, which prior to the preparation for this, I had no, no experience with whatsoever. And, uh, yeah. TJ, this was your idea, I think, right? Was, uh, we were no, going that was pool. definitely Eric's idea that we always use BSD because it, it offset the, the offense. They, they weren't prepared for it. And the aspect of kind of continuous too. They didn't know how to signatureize uh, many of the OSs when we would like take a FreeBSD image and then like heavily modify everything, uh, like recompile all kinds of stuff from source, um, just make everything as unique as as humanly possible. It would really kind of um, strip the uh, uh, the red the red team cells ability to just use like canned capabilities right out of a you know a Kali distro. At the time, it was called something different, but. Um, no, I think TJ tells the story a little bit better. Backtrack. Um, backtrack. Back tr- it was backtrack. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think I got stuck with the fun one. Or I, I had two. I don't know why I had two. I think there were some other people that weren't carrying their weight, and I got stuck with two. I had to defend the uh, Active Directory boxes, which was just a nightmare. Like with, it, it was just like, yeah, here, just take this. And, um, and then I also had the email server. The email server was infinitely easier because I think we were just running postfix on a Unix box. So it was like, Oh, I can, I can do that. That's pretty easy. Um, the active directory one was a nightmare. And I know way more about like active directory. Uh, what do they used to call it? The, like the SSLF, like the specific profiles that you could push out to computers to like lock everything down. Um, since I, I think I just cranked it up to like 11 because we didn't have like actual users that were like using the, uh, the end devices. And so, like, I could just lock down everything. I could be like, no, you can't use Internet Explorer or something like that. Yeah. And so... It turns out cinder blocks are pretty secure computers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I I think they still got in, right? Like, it was, it was, it was like TJ and Dr. O'Connor were saying, like, it was, like, unfair. They got in once and one time only. And um, I I guess I'll tell the story because Mike kind of hinted at it. Mike... uh, Mike was one of the, the best students we ever had at the military academy, so I don't want to distinguish away from that. Um, but but Mike did just have his wisdom teeth done. So we had allocated him probably the simplest task possible. Take a BSD box and, and install Nagios on it and and just set up Nagios. And we figured that's the one thing that that just, you know, he could probably accomplish that um, while and heavily medicated from uh, his, his wisdom teeth surgery. And um, and unfortunately he configured it with default credentials, Nagios, Nagios. Now for three years, I had been mocking every friend of mine that was on the red team saying, you will never get into us. And, uh, the second they got in, I got a text message about it from, uh, Raf Mudge, who is the creator of Cobalt Strike slash Armitage. He was on the team and he texted me to let me know that the streak had been broken. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, being young and ambitious and uh, slightly uh, capricious, I 
I, Mike and I probably had a conversation after that, uh, that, uh, probably didn't, uh, respect my best attitude, but yeah, that, that's the only time they got in that during the three, at least the three years I was there. And it's cause yeah, we, we just broke every rule set possible within the context of the rules. Uh, it's a fantastic learning experience. So fortunately we had like appropriately DMZ the Nagios box. So it was a completely useless, uh, yeah penetration from their perspective but actually my favorite uh memory from that particular uh exercise was um so a unique inject that year was that the red team got to uh provide the configuration for uh what was called the general's laptop so basically they got the opportunity to drop a virtual machine image for like a vip that was going to be on the enclave so if they couldn't break in then by god they were going to inject themselves in with this like just totally owned image that was going to wreck havoc on the network. So uh, one of my classmates um, had the ingenious idea of leveraging Metasploit to remotely administrate that box, which at the time there was not specific rules developed around like you can't, you can't hack like your own computers in order to use them to just, uh, you know, like in rapid fire, uh, just kill adversarial processes as an administration technique. So um, that was a, that was a lot of fun. Uh, do, do you remember some of those conversations, uh, TJ around, uh, the, the like white cell and the red team being really yeah, upset so, about Yeah, So, I mean, it was, it, was interesting, it was an interesting, uh, opportunity to understand where, where, uh, rule sets need to be clearly defined first for competitions. Um, if you want them to be clearly defined and, and this is kind of one of these interesting aspects of cybersecurity. I, I think with Jeopardy style CTFs. If you get to a solution, it doesn't matter. However, you got to it, whatever unintended path you take exceeds in success, then it counts and it scores. Um, in, in cyber defense exercises, we try to constrain them more to achieve specific learning objectives. And sometimes that makes things like remote administration with Metasploit uh, appear out of scope, but technically are kind of still in scope. So I remember uh, we had a great debate about that with the the organizers of the, the competition. Um, we went into the, uh, if I remember correctly, we went into the Metasploit source code, and it was it was the the PS exec module for Metasploit, and we explained that, and and the ruling was that if PS exec was allowed to remotely administer, which they conceded it was, then. The Metasploit version of PS Exec, uh, despite the kind of wealth of post-exploit tools that we used, was in scope because it was the same exact essential kind of uh, avenue. And and yeah, not everyone was happy about that at the time. Uh, we were happy about the ruling. We definitely fought for the ruling, uh, and uh, but uh, it, it did uh, it did hurt some feelings because it probably was on the borderline of what we should and shouldn't do. And we probably took the wrong lesson away because I remember some of my classmates years later trying to uh, figure out why they couldn't get these, uh, you know, remote administration tools approved through like an RMF process. <laughs> and people were just like fainting at the, at the, you know, the site of Metasploit on like a, an accreditation packet. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that's like a lot of that's like the beauty of cybersecurity, right, is the ability to kind of think outside the box and find the back way in because, I mean, that's that's how these massive uh, attacks occur, right? Like nobody's just, well, hopefully, like nobody's, you know, doing the, um, 
the solar winds attack and just ran like a metasploit toolkit and got in right like you would assume that it was at least that secure and somebody did something creative and it's like how do you start to get people to think about these like creative avenues and ways in and i would argue that like probably one of the only ways is to see it happen once or twice to get you to kind of start tinkering in your mind like oh well if i come in you know left and then right um it's a little bit easier um to kind of get them to start thinking that way i'm Josh, did you ever, I don't know if you ever did any CTFs at West Point, because you were like off doing, I don't know what you were doing, Yeah, but I don't I, think it was schoolwork. <laughs> no, I, so I didn't really get into cybersecurity, ironically, until after, uh, after I graduated. Um, but, uh, you know, what's, what's funny about like using Metasploit for defensive purposes, I think it like underlines a really interesting uh, and on a really interesting point, which is, you know, the difference between a hunt tool or EDR tool and a rootkit is really just intent, right? It's like, you know, you're using the exact same techniques to try to hunt for, you know, intrusions and remediate uh, them as you are when you're attacking. I mean, the system doesn't care who you are. It's just executing code, right? Um, so I, I think you guys were onto something probably a, a decade ahead of the, you uh, uh, the, the cybersecurity industry. So, it, yeah, it's almost like a, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, it's kind of one of the kind of uh, mentors of the program that we had that, that came in from the outside uh, was, was Mudge from the loft um, and phenomenal, uh, just phenomenal information security expert. Um, and, and he did a, a lot to talk to students occasionally when we did a panel with them. I think he interned, a, he did a, Mike did an internship with him at DARPA when he was a PM down there. And then we got to see the whole cyber fast track and rule, um, and, and his efforts on that. But at, at one point when he was speaking to the cadets, uh, something he said, and I'll just absolutely never forget it. He said, when you develop a tool, if you don't understand it's, it's offensive purpose and it's defensive purpose, you haven't fully fleshed out that tool yet. Like, like every tool has an offensive and defensive purpose. And if you, if you haven't figured out what it is, then your tool probably isn't complete. You haven't seen all aspects of it. Um, and, and, and I, I absolutely love flipping that paradigm uh, because I think any offensive tool is fully capable of being a defensive tool and every, every defensive tool is fully capable of being an uh, offensive tool. And, and yeah, well, I think it's crazy explanation like, of how EDR and EDR and, and uh, Rootkit's work is, is exactly right. I mean, they just hook different things and whoever hooks first wins. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how like this whole notion of like the computer virus got invented many, many, many years ago. And now we're, it's like all these things are still very similar to how we do like vaccines and virus and stuff like that. Like it's all it's crazy how it's still like we still find ways to relate it back to like the virus and like things like that. Um, because you know, well, up until the most recent one, like you're basically fighting the virus with the virus and it's like, Oh, okay, cool. Like here, here we go. Um, this so. still, it's still all about executing code though. Right. Like even the, the most recent vaccines, yeah. it's just getting the body <laughs> hacking this code. Proteins. Yeah. It's just making yeah. these proteins. Um, you know, and, and it's a similar thing when you're on an endpoint, you know, you're like, Run, run these instructions um, and whether whether you get them to be run. I mean, like, you know, modern EDR tools, just like riffing on what TJ is saying here is 
you don't want to get detected by the bad guys because they're also looking for you. So it's this sort of spy versus spy game. And you're using the same techniques. You know, you look, you look at modern EDR tools and it's like they're all using reflective loading and they're staying off the disk and they're like dynamically loading functions and all this like stealthy stuff that we used to see from advanced APTs. Now it's just like advanced APTs. Uh, just, just, they're just called APTs. Um, uh, you, you know, you're, you're seeing the exact same thing in, in, in EDR. So I, I think this is like just a common, um, kind of like a common theme across all these, all these industries. It's just, uh, you're all using the same techniques. You're, you're part of the same game. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's just intent. It's what, what are you trying to get out of this, uh, system? Along those lines, yeah. what do you think about the, uh, the recent FBI, uh, auto securing exchange servers. <laughs> I got opinions. <laughs> Boy. Well, I mean, Josh, I think it, it works well to that, that previous episode we did with the, the government backdoors, yeah. right? Like it just, it fits right in line with that. Like they, it'd be much easier for them to patch if there was just that encryption backdoor, they could just, they could just <laughs> walk right in as opposed to them, you know, having to come in and, and patch. Um, I think it's an interesting topic, right? Because if, Right. Like legally, if you look at their charter, right, like are they what's their charter? It's like to protect the, you know, the citizens of the United States against, you know, foreign actors. Right. I think is something similar. Um, if not, it should be. Uh, and so it's it's kind of interesting in that aspect. I, I don't know if I'm a if I'm a super hardcore corporate client, do I want them doing that? But at the end of the day, if you're super hardcore and you left it open, I mean, I don't know. I think it's it's questionable, right? Because nobody's going to say anything if it was just some rogue group on the internet, right? Which we've seen before. Like the good guy hacker, good guy Greg comes in and just starts patching people's things, but he's not associated with like a government entity or a nation state or anything like that. And people are like, oh, good job, Greg. You know, like I'm sure some people at that company are very pissed off because you basically just big dog them and been like, oh, I can patch your systems faster than you and I'm not even a member. Um, and so I think it's an interesting conversation I don't know if it's a slippery slope, right? Like at what level, like, do they just start, you know, I mean, we talked about them creating like a cyber agency, right? And like, and if they're just always scanning US servers, looking for open S3 buckets and things like that, and just kind of letting you know, I don't know if that's appropriate use of government funds, but it's an interesting idea. Um, especially, I don't know, as cybersecurity becomes like a, an everyday, like, you know, problem now that affects everybody, not just, you know, corporate clients and things like that. I don't know. Josh, you, what do you got? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, to the immediate point of like people use the exact same techniques and it's all just a matter of intent and perspective. I mean, TJ, I think it's a perfect example. You know, you've got basically the setup is you have these Outlook servers that have really critical vulnerabilities on them. Bad actors have like web web shells, which are you know just essentially like arbitrary uh, remote access uh, kinds of kit on on these things. And the FBI got a warrant from a Texas judge to go exploit onto these servers. So basically, use the same exact you know same exact access vector as the attackers did to get onto these systems. But their intent was rather than to use these as infrastructure or steal information off of them or whatever was to kick the bad guys out. So there are like layers of interesting things to this, this story. I mean, one is, you know, along this theme of just, well, uh, you know, they're, they're using the exact same kinds of access vectors and things. It's just another, another example of that happening. 
I think the broader question, um, which I think a lot of people in the information security community have a lot of opinions about is like, should the FBI have done that? Like, should they have the ability to get a warrant to go in and do this? Because the enterprises, at least as far as we know, and as far as the warrant knows, uh, hadn't done anything wrong besides like have malware running on one of their Outlook servers. So one of the questions is, um, do, do we as like American citizens and enterprises have the right to be dumb and not, uh, not patch our systems? You know, um, are there some sort of extenuating circumstances that basically like, you know, almost, I almost liken it to like the, um, the sort of tragedy. Not getting the vaccine. Yeah. Like not getting a vaccine. Exactly. Or, or an analogy I used the other day was like, um, you know, say you have like a termite infestation in your house and like you have a right to be dumb and like not get rid of those termites, but now you just created a hazard for your neighbors. Like that's, that's sort of where these things get a little bit interesting. To be clear, I don't know that um, these Outlook servers being compromised caused any sort of like existential threat to other like third parties. But I think that's, that's probably where they were trying to go with it. Um, yeah. I don't know what you guys think. So the so getting a warrant approved to essentially conduct a search, which I think is probably what the judge was specifically ruling on, is interesting when the probable cause or the legal grounds for that are unclear. You mentioned that like these unpatched servers and their owners really hadn't hadn't done anything. I actually, ironically, that's the problem. They hadn't patched them, but. Uh, by not patching them, they hadn't committed any kind of crime or arguably any any harm to others. I think that you know that might be uh, something that could probably be argued in a court of law. It's interesting too to consider what would the ramifications be if uh, during a patching operation, one of these automated patching operations, there was some impact uh, monetarily or or otherwise that was able to directly or indirectly be attributed to the FBI's actions. Like I just, you know, having been uh, a fly on the wall to listening to like DOD lawyers debate uh, different types of, uh, you know, cyber uh, (laughs) operations, I can only imagine what the legal discussion was internal to the FBI. And I actually think that if there was some way that that legal discussion could have been um, recorded and uh, and maybe shared like in edited form uh, to the community. It would be it would be a fascinating read or listen. I, I really truly uh, think that that could be some really great material, probably for uh, you know for the students uh, TJ that that you talk to. I'm sure there's some type of ethics theme in some of your courses. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I mean it's it's definitely an interesting question, right? And I think you can you can make the argument on either side. Um, you can make the argument that that it exceeds the scope of, of what they should be doing, and you can make the argument that uh, for the security of nearby partners, um, they had to do it. Um, my general thought is, as long as the scope was narrow enough of what they did, right, and and you could kind of guarantee that it's not going to include any damage, then I, I think they're okay. Um, you know, if it's simply going in to disable a web shell by pulling that web shell out and and stopping it from calling home i'm okay with that um if they are auto patching devices that are in production serving a community and they're not notifying those individuals that's an interesting kind of question um 
I mean, there's precedent for it because several companies have done that, right? Apple has Apple stores yeah. of applications off phones. So is Google, right? Uh, with the, the Google Play Store where an application is known to be vulnerable, they'll pull it off a device. Um, but uh, having the federal government do it is an interesting kind of turn. Do we know, did they attempt to contact the, uh, the system owners ahead of time? I'm, I'm sure they did. Post, no, it was post facto as far as I'm aware. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So, I, so well, I'm just predicting this. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about this. You've got their communications infrastructure is compromised. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, I'm sure that we'll see more of these now that there's at least one, uh, you know, case uh, or one ruling uh, in, in this direction. But um, I, I am concerned and worried when uh, official government entities start to see this as part of their charter, because I think that there's always this fear of scope creep that we see that in, uh, in a lot of uh, similar, you know, court cases and rulings. And, and I, I, TJ, to, to your point, you know, this sounds great, but I worry like where things would be in another 10 or 15 years. Yeah, right. So, like, take, I mean, other, oh, sorry, go ahead. Take like the pipeline attack, right? So you have the pipeline attack going on and now has a substantial impact ransomware. Uh, imagine that an agency could immediately remote into the first machine that was compromised and shut it down before it spread to, to, to nearby workstations within that company. You know, do you want that or do you not want that? And at, at what point, you know, where, where does that line get drawn? There's, there's also, I think, really important philosophical questions here around law enforcement uh, entities doing this sort of thing. You know, suppose uh, you've got an operator on a box and they see evidence of a crime. So, you know, you got a warrant to go in, remediate a third party intrusion you're on an email server, you're on, you know, file share and you see, I mean, take the most extreme example, you know, like whatever, whatever that is, you see evidence of a crime there. Um, how, how do you, how do you deal with that? Is it now, are, are you, are you sort of, um, uh, yeah, how, how do you deal with that? I mean, you, 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 you went in with a specific purpose without probable cause for a crime, but now you found another you know what I mean? It's like it, it opens up a whole can of worms that I'm sure like first year law students are going to be debating about for the next century. Yeah. And I think I think there's also another interesting point, right? Like what if <laughs> it's not the case, but like what if the FBI is just trying to be efficient, right? Because if they do end up getting hacked, the FBI has to get called in, dedicate a ton of resources to go investigate and determine and do all of this work when they could have just patched it in five minutes and been done, you know? And it's like, okay, cool. We can actually spend time on, you know, working on actual like hardcore hacks and we can dedicate those resources and be better at finding that stuff. Yeah. Um, I also think it's interesting that if they just scan and kind of know this, like you have, you have beat cops that walk around neighborhoods that are observing for crimes, right? Like if these boxes are open to the world and accessible, you know, if there just happened to be like around and they witness a crime occur or the evidence that a crime occurred, right? Like they find a finger in the bushes, right? Like, is that any different now that we're kind of moving towards this like completely online world? Or is there some sort of like delineation that can be drawn there, right? I mean, if you're just out and about looking at publicly accessible systems, does, you know, the FBI or whoever, like some future cyber 
thing have that authority or that like mandate to like make sure you know people are protected when it's on the public the public domain if you will Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly an argument that um, if you have compromisable infrastructure out there uh, that an attacker can collect into um, either their attack infrastructure or some kind of bot to do nefarious things, there's like, um, yeah, there's a very reasonable argument to be made that you are creating, uh, by having that sort of compromisable stuff out there, you are creating conditions that deteriorate like the safety and functionality of, of the internet. Like there's, 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 it's just a matter of degrees, right? It's like, so I don't know. I don't know. I'd like TJ said, you could argue both sides of this. I mean, I know there are like vociferous defenders on Twitter. I mean, you almost didn't mean to say that with Twitter, but there are, (laughs) there are, there are people on, on real extremes of this issue who, you know, for example, they say, well, look, I mean, we have really strong, um, really strong tradition in this country uh, uh, against illegal search and seizure, right? And there have to be just absolutely exigent circumstances for you to violate someone's due process. And um, I mean, in this case, they got a warrant, but it was sort of like a no-knock warrant, right? Um, and there was no crime that was committed, right? As far as we, as far as um, the legal code is concerned, like having an Outlook server that was that's unpatched does not make you culpable of a crime. So I think that is where the hypersensitivity is coming into play is that people are like, there was no crime committed, yet the the government still issued a warrant for for a law enforcement agency to go in um, and use force, right? Use use basically what is tantamount to criminal activity, you know, like the criminal techniques of getting onto the server without permission uh, to go to go do some activity, and that I think that, that just, especially in this country, like gives people real cause because we, uh, you know, real, real cause for concern because we we have such a strong tradition against allowing the government to do these sorts of things. Yeah, so I and think Jonathan I think just the, tailing the, on to the FBI you know, Josh's really comments. I, sorry. Oh, sorry. There is a delay. So after you, TJ. No, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. So just uh, tagging on to Josh's comments, I think another component of the uh, angst around this conversation kind of relates back to, uh, you know, an established theme of who's responsible, uh, accountable, and liable for cyber attacks. So up until this point, the uh, the owner operator of infrastructure is the one that ultimately holds the liability bag, right? We haven't seen anybody, uh, you know, due to these really uh, uh, long form, uh, you know, end user license agreements and, and all of this other, you know, legalese, nobody has successfully been able to shift the blame to a software manufacturer um, or to an operating system, you know, OEM, right, for, for cyber attacks, vulnerabilities, et cetera. It's always been on the owner operator, uh, even when there were flaws in, in the product that they bought and are now operating. Um, up until this point, you know, the law enforcement and and U.S. federal government has taken the approach of, you know, hey, guys, it's on you. It's the Wild West. Um, It's not even really clear, I feel, in the community, like what the law enforcement support role is, except to maybe conduct an investigation and and pursue, um, you know, prosecution and investigation, like when crimes are are, uh, deemed to be 
committed, but it's uh, it's unclear like how and when, especially federal law enforcement chooses to pursue certain investigations and hacks for prosecution as opposed to others. Um, and and now this in the mix. And so I feel like they're uh, I, I feel like you know part of the uh, the debate is talking about at the meta level, like what is our government's role in securing and uh, you know providing um, either incident response, which you could argue this you know might fall under. Uh, or uh, some type of active hunt or, or proactive defense of private infrastructure. Uh, we, you know, going back to kind of the traditional law enforcement role, um, you know, talking about police officers doing a beat, doing a, a neighborhood patrol, uh, you know, we pay for and expect some level of services like that. We also pay for and expect public good like, uh, like the fire department to come help us put our, our house out before it catches the rest of the block on fire. Um, and I think that this is uh, is probably that next um, use case in, in a larger debate about the evolution of uh, law enforcement and, and especially our government's involvement in the security of uh, digital infrastructure. Um, I think that this is an overdue debate, uh, but uh, but certainly an interesting use case. Do you think, um, you know, supposing that, uh, I, I think you can make the reasonable argument that, uh, enterprises private uh, citizens have like a responsibility as as you know internet citizens to keep their devices free of malware to some sort of reasonable extent you know uh that through patching and, and, and things that are reasonably available to them um i think that's kind of like so much of this is predicated on that that people have a responsibility to do that and you know, if so, could you imagine a setup where essentially you have the ability to like opt out of the government's ability to compromise your device and go on and like fix it, uh, but that just like you know failing to mow your grass or um, you know keep your keep your sort of house in order, uh, uh, you you could be fined, for example, for for not having you know a patched operating system or service. Uh, if it, you know, if it's getting actively compromised and sort of, you know, put it back on people to say, look, like we get it. You don't like this government overreach, given that we sort of as an Internet community need to keep these devices free of malware. You have two choices. Either we're going to fix it for you or you're going to give us permission to basically get onto this device to, to fix stuff. Or you're going to say, no, you don't have the ability. But if you find you know evidence of kind of malware on it, you're going to get fined for it, you know. No, I, I I think what we're all kind of hitting no, at I think it's... is where the ownership exists. Um, and and Mike Mike really said it best. And, you know, who who's really who's who's really at at um, at fault, and and who's really responsible for the fix? Is it the software vendor? Is it the federal government? Is the individual end user required to put protection mechanisms in place that prevent attacks, regardless of the vulnerability of the software? Um, you know, who, who, and, and really, I think this is something that we've struggled with in information security for a very long time and never really solved is ultimately who's responsible and, and where blame gets shifted is, is sometimes unbelievable. I mean, the, the solar winds attack, right? You have the CEO going on television and saying that one intern put one password as admin one, two, three, or whatever, or solar winds one, two, three, and, and try to, at, at some point, at least mitigate their, their responsibility in it by pointing to an intern. Um, I think we all at, at times struggle with, you know, ownership over who is ultimately responsible when we have kind of an epic failure happen. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting way, especially 
like if you look at how the the cloud uh, the cloud providers, right, like Amazon and Google and Azure use the like the shared responsibility model to like defer like who's responsible for patching images and get it off their their shoulders and things like that. I think this could be possibly like an extension of that, but at the end of the day there's probably something that needs to be set up because I would argue the people that are now being able to like spin up boxes and connect things to the internet like their level of, you know, knowledge in the space is getting lower and lower because it's easier and easier to do this. And so I'm not advocating for more government oversight, but I think there just needs to be some clearly defined lines on like who's responsible because even, even with the shared responsibility model, right? Like if you get an image that gets owned on Amazon, Amazon detects it and immediately kills it, right? Like they shut it down. They say like, Hey, your machine was uh, overtaken and then caused a denial of service attack on like these 4,000 other machines. And they kind of step in and I think maybe kind of having a level of that defined clearly for like other devices that are sitting on the internet, it's like, hey, there's like a certain threshold, but like once this starts to happen, we're going to step in and take it down, right? Like it, we're going to step in after we see your home camera talking to 4,000 other home cameras, right? Like that shouldn't be happening and we'll step in and then take over that. And so I think it's going to be super interesting because a lot of these softwares and things like that are now all consolidating in these cloud providers. And it's it's going to be interesting where the cloud provider versus like the software vendor is kind of responsible, right? Because I don't know why the FBI didn't go to, say, Microsoft and just be like, hey, force patch this this version, right? Like anybody running this, just push the force patch, right? We've seen Apple do that in iOS exploits that are being actively exploited, they just pushed a security update overnight and forced it on everybody's phones, right? And so I don't know if we can kind of get to that spot where it's like, Microsoft, you have this like very insecure thing that is starting to be actively exploited. Like you push it and it's just part of your, you know, software license agreement that like if there's a critical thing, we're going to patch it and just, you know, do it that way. And so I don't know. I think you have two different things happening in the, yeah, go um, ahead. Uh, in the, the, the chopper attacks. And, and what's really interesting about that is that um, I think the FBI chooses really interesting cases sometimes to make kind of prominent. They do this with the San Bernardino shooter to kind of talk about the, the role of uh, vendors putting in encryption backdoors. And I think they, they selectively chose this one to have a discussion about the role of government in, in attacking. And the, kind of, the unique aspect is, yeah, Microsoft can absolutely patch exchange to prevent future vulnerabilities, but uh, Microsoft probably is very uncomfortable, I have to assume, with going in and removing web shells or files off of a user system that they did not originally create, right? And, and you know, there's some liability issues there. Maybe a user has a legitimate PHP script running on a web server and they pull it off and now they're, they're vulnerable to their customer that just looks bad. Um, and so there's an interesting division of labor there. I think, I think most software vendors have no problem auto-forcing a patch under exigent circumstances but individually start touching users' files, I think they're very uncomfortable with. Um, and so it, it's an interesting division of labor. I'm actually kind of surprised. Oh, sorry. Sorry, there's yeah, the lag. Um, uh, yeah, and, and TJ, you said bring up like a kind of really interesting question, which is I'm actually surprised that the attackers didn't close the door behind them, right? Like one of the things that was weird about this is that um, – 
you know, typically if you're if you're an APT and you gain access on infrastructure, like you you don't want the ability for others, whether that's other bad guys or you know the FBI or whoever, to come in and clean up. So you know you'll typically do things like either disabling patching to make sure that like you don't um, get this the system into a state where you can no longer execute, or like potentially patch the issue yourself, right, as part of your uh, exploitation thing. What a nice thing for them to do for you. Uh, so that like you make make sure that you've gained access and it makes it hard for people to remediate and for other people to to use that access potentially blow your cover. Jonathan, I just want to underscore your proposal for, you know, clear guidelines on uh, responsibilities and, and who's accountable across kind of the entire life cycle of a, of a technology system, the software and hardware um, absolutely is necessary. Uh, just you know, quick shout out to like what uh, Josh and I do on a daily basis. We operate in the OT space where there really is not uh, a, a concept of patching or regularly updating firmware and software on board different, you know, embedded computers and heavy equipment. So uh, it's almost like being in the early 90s uh, where, you know, security patches, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself like, man, wouldn't that be great if we had the ability to do that? We could be such responsible citizens. But um, the problem that I run into in meetings uh, with vendors and with OEMs and uh, and with operators um, on a near daily basis is that uh, many operators um, look to the uh, suppliers, the supplier community and say, well, that's their problem. Um, and I'm captive to that supplier community. And then the supplier community says, well, it's not our problem because like, we sell a thing and there's no subscription model to it. And so why am I responsible for, you know, continuing to uh, fix it, uh, maintain it, secure it, you know, down the road. Plus it's no longer even my stuff. Like I sold a product in a traditional market. It's out of my hands. It's now their problem. Um, and so ironically in the operational technology world, often you find that uh, nobody is taking any responsibility or accountability. And that leads to, the worst security outcome, which is that uh, nobody's doing anything about it. So I think that the discussion um, about uh, responsibility and accountability, uh, what those roles are, I, I would really love to see that uh, conversation continue and, and hopefully be applied to you know critical infrastructure markets and operational technology uh, verticals where, uh, where right now I think that conversation is sorely needed. The perfect way to end the podcast with that um, I want to thank all y'all for coming on today, uh, having a great discussion. Um, I think it was it was super interesting. Um, yeah, and it was it was a lot of fun. So I appreciate it. Thanks everybody for being on. And that does it for this episode of the Cyberry Podcast. Thanks, guys. Cyberry, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why three million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.